Well, just imagine um, later today, uh, as you're watching the Braves play baseball or golf tournament, and which all that means to me is taking a nap. And uh, but let's just say you 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 wake up from your nap and the game's still on, the tournament's still on, and you look at the screen and scrolling across the bottom of the screen is this message: "Scientists discover cure for cancer." That's that little news headline. That's news flash, news alert. And as that scrolls, the commentators that you're seeing, you can just see this emotional response to that news, and their tears begin to to flow. And I, I just you're thinking, if you've been to sporting events where you're, let's say you're at a Braves game and uh, some other sporting event, the Atlanta United's playing or something, and they score a score a goal. And the crowd erupts in applause, and sometimes people like me are like, what is going on? And, but everybody else got their phone, so they know, and they, they got the scores on other... So everybody call, but if, you, if that news alert, that started to go out, and people started seeing that, and people are getting texts and messages, the crowd just begins to applaud at that news, and then, and then the, the, it cuts over to, to the news coverage, and so there's this breaking news alert, and the game goes away, and news team breaks into the coverage, and they report that this vaccine has been created that will cure any type of cancer at any stage, and it's ready for production. I mean, what would happen? The whole world would erupt in celebration. Cell phone networks would be shut down because everybody would be trying to call friends and family members and and, 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 and all, as, this, as, as people spread this news, hospitals, hospice units would just be filled with loud cheering and applause. I mean, the whole world, there'd be cheeks, tears of joy streaming down cheeks. Why? Because almost everybody in the world has been touched by this disease. By having it themselves or by knowing someone who <coughs> has it or had it. We've all seen up close the awful effects that this disease has caused. We've watched loved ones die from it. Because we live in a world where there's no question about the tragic effects of a disease like cancer, if a cure was discovered, you'd better believe the world would erupt in celebration. I mean, this would go down as one of the greatest moments in human history. Well, listen, keep that in mind and... <clears throat> just say this, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest and most important event in all of human history. As Christians, we affirm this. We have to affirm this. This good news, the gospel, it means everything to us. But if, but if we're honest, we don't always think, we don't always talk, we don't always live and act like it's the most important thing that's ever happened in all of human history. <clears throat> Why not? Well, because we can, we can immediately relate to the physical devastation that cancer brings. And we, we get that. But many of us fail to grasp the extent of the devastation that's been caused by sin. And so news of cancer, it wouldn't impress us, of a cure for cancer, it wouldn't impress us very much if we didn't consider cancer to be a serious problem. I mean, if the news alert was uh, cure for athlete's foot discovered, we'd be like, oh, that's good. That could come in useful sometime, you know. Uh, but we, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't erupt in celebration. But with cancer, yes. In the same way, we won't treasure and celebrate 
the death and resurrection of Jesus, if we view, if we don't view sin as an utterly devastating problem in the world. <coughs> and so here we have our Good Friday and Easter worship. But every Lord's Day, every day for the Christian, it, it will be dulled if we don't grasp the backstory. And we get the backstory here. Jesus' death and resurrection was the greatest solution, the greatest cure, the greatest rescue the world could ever hope for, for this world that's just held in chains of darkness. It's, it's the only, it was the only thing that could have made the difference in, in our hopeless existence. But we can't cherish it the way it's meant to be cherished if we refuse to see sin for what it really is. If our perception of sin is wrong, then our trust in and celebration of the cross and the empty tomb <coughs> will be rather shallow. So Genesis 3, it tells us what went wrong in the world. We get to see this in its infancy. It's the heartbreaking story of catastrophic, universal ruin. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's also hopeful in, in that it prepares us and it points us to God's rescue mission. And so the ruin, it's, it's setting us up for the redemption that is ours in Christ. And so God pursuing us in our lostness and brokenness, our misery, making our ruin into redemption. This is what is set for us here in Genesis 3. But you can't get the redemption part unless you really understand the ruin part. And if we get the beginning of the story wrong, we'll be in trouble as we keep going, keep going. If you we, if you were trying to lay flooring like this, it you know kind of locks together and tongue and groove flooring or something like that. The, generally, the way you lay flooring in a long room like this, you you start you get a center line and you and you lay that center run and then you work out towards the walls. Um, and so, just take that image of a room like this, a big long room or a long hallway, uh, like the downstairs hallway, and we were running flooring down that hallway or something like that you you measure let's just say you measure from the wall you, you make a mark the center mark then you move up six inches and you do the same thing that's not the way you should do it so don't take notes this is not a diy instructional uh talk right now uh, but for the sake of illustration let's just pretend you do that so your second measurement because some little pebbles on the baseboard it's an eighth of an inch off you think eighth of an inch that's not a big deal and it's not over six inches but if you, if you draw your line off of that little eighth of an inch variation over six inches, by the time you get, you know, 60 feet down the hallway, that's going to be, you know, a foot or two. <coughs> if you're walking down the hallway and not paying attention and you're just following the board, you're going to run into the wall or something. I mean, it's going to look, it's going to look horrible. Well, my point is, if you get it wrong in the beginning, you're going to have trouble by the end. And so you get Genesis 3 in these next chapters and that we're looking at in Genesis, if you, if you don't, if you fail to see <coughs> the situation that we're in, we're going to be in trouble when it comes to understanding what's to come. <coughs> Excuse me. If we get these opening chapters wrong, we won't see our utter need for Christ. We won't cherish the gospel like we should. Without a proper understanding of our sin and our culpability, we can't understand grace and we won't embrace grace like we're called to. If we don't understand we're born sinners in rebellion against God, the gospel will just be gibberish to us. And it won't, it won't have that substantial weight that it's intended to have. So for this reason, understanding these next several 
chapters of Genesis, everything they teach about sin is foundational um, for our appreciation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be seeing over the next, over the next several weeks. And so Genesis 1-2, to 2, just to setting up the context again, Mom, remember God gave Adam paradise. He gave him and Eve everything <coughs> for them, everything he made for their enjoyment. And God gave them the, something of infinite value, himself. And so as, as they've been made in the image of God, they, they, Adam and Eve, they freely and intimately walk with God in the garden. Unhindered fellowship, perfect fellowship with God. And there's no need for any kind of, we think of, disciplined devotion to God. No, all of life was devotion. They weren't like oh, beating themselves up because they didn't wake up and have their quiet time. Or something. This life was lived openly, walking with God. It was paradise. And, and even relationally, domestically, Adam and Eve, they're, they're united by God. We saw this last time, and, and they're, they're even naked with one another, unashamed. <coughs> There's nothing to hide, nothing to protect. There, this, the gravitational pull of self that we know so well, and, and how it affects our marriages and our relationships, it didn't exist. This was just perfect union. <coughs> Can you just try to wrap your mind around what that was like. A time when sin did not exist. Sin is not eternal. Uh, and, and so there was a time when the first man and woman had everything they could have dreamed of. God offered Adam everything, even himself, but there was this one prohibition. And you look back in verse 15 to 17 of chapter 2. Look there quickly with me. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, <clears throat> and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. <clears throat> One guideline. Surely that's not too hard to keep, right? They had all of these other delicious fruit-bearing, and beautiful, delicious fruit-bearing trees, and all of the fruit to eat from. No problem. Problem. Yeah. There's a problem, and we're going to see that today. And so, as we walk through this, these the verses in, in, in Genesis 3 here, we're going to... <coughs> there's four words that will kind of frame this, these movements, this descent into sin, and into the ruin that is setting us up for the redemption to come. And so, these four, move, four words, and they all start with S. Serpent, seduction, sin, and shame. Serpent, seduction, sin, and shame. And so let's look at those together. First of all, serpent. Verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we're going to see in the next verse, this, this, this serpent talks. Now what is up with that? <coughs> well, from the New Testament, we know that, the, the, that Satan was speaking through the serpent. We get that not until the New Testament, really. We're, we aren't going to spend time developing a full theology of the devil this morning, that's not the point of the passage here. <coughs> but there, I know there are questions that sit there: Who, what is Satan? Where did he come from? What's wrong with him? Uh, how did he get this way? I mean, clearly there's some, there's a rebellion, there's a fall that's happened in the angelic world prior to this, sometime between creation and what we read here. But what I, one thing I do want you to see in verse one, we're going to see the unrivaled sovereignty of God. The the serpent and Satan, they're all creatures of God. God. God doesn't have an equal. He doesn't have a rival. 
that God and Satan are not these co-eternal powers in the universe locked in this eternal struggle. This isn't Star Wars and the forces of good and evil. That's not it. There's no equal balance like that. God alone is eternal. He alone is all-powerful. The serpent is simply one of the creatures, the text says, that the Lord God had made. So notice that. The sovereignty of God. But this text isn't really about the serpent. It's not answering all those questions about him. It's about us. This doesn't answer all the questions about him. It answers the question about us. Who are we? Where did we come from? What's wrong with us? How did we get this way? That's what this passage is intended to answer. And so, but with this serpent, we, we see this first step downward in, in this downward descent. And it happens when the serpent speaks to the woman, to Eve. Look what he says in verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And that begins this next movement, next word, seduction. Seduction. The catastrophic fall of the human race that doesn't begin with this uh, violent action. It begins with an attitude. An attitude. At parents, we can understand this in our own parenting. It's not what the serpent does. It's what he says and, and, and how he says it. There's, there's two main ingredients to the seduction we see here from, from the serpent. The first part is this sneer. There's a sneer and there's a lie. But look at the sneer. The serpent isn't asking some honest question in verse 1. He's not, he's not saying, have I understood correctly that, that God said that? Or am, am I mistaken? Did I get that wrong? That's not what he's saying. He, he's, he's mocking God in this very condescending way. We use this question the same way. You ever hear somebody say something like, did he really just say that? We're not saying, did, did, I, is, did, I, did I make that up? Was I asleep? When, no, we, we know he said it. We, he, we're, we're saying with a comment like that, was he such a fool or such a jerk that he really just said that? Tell me he didn't say that. And that's what, that's what I mean. And that's what the serpent's saying. He's not suggesting that God maybe or maybe didn't actually say it. He's saying that what God said is ridiculous. It's laughable. That's what the serpent's saying. He's trying to plant in Eve's mind the seed of doubt about the wisdom and the goodness and the fairness of God. And so did God really say something so unfair, so unreasonable, so restrictive? Did God really say that? So this is, this is, what, he, this is what he's using to seduce her. This sneer. He's, he's beginning to seduce him. Not with argumentation, but with insinuation. Insinuation. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to laugh at what God said instead of trust it and obey it. He's trying to change their attitudes toward it. And that really has not changed, has it? <coughs> I mean, in our day, when you see people that you know, seem to turn away from Christianity, and I know all the statistics, and when people come up in the church and they go out from the church, and many of them turn away. It's not generally because of some clear, concise, compelling arguments against Christianity, but it's usually because of sneers. It, 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 all they hear is mockery of Christianity, of Christ, of Christians, of the Word of God. Everybody's saying, do you really believe that stuff? Or can you believe she actually believes that? And, and, and we, we, we just kind of want to withdraw back into our shells. We don't want to be weird. We, don't wanna, we, don't wanna, we want to fit in. And our confidence in Christ crumbles not through, not through argument, but through mockery. 
and I've you've seen this so many times. For every one argument you hear against Christianity, you hear a hundred sneers. <coughs> it's just mockery. And this is an old seduction. The seduction doesn't generally come again through argumentation, but through insinuation. And so, this is, this is the serpent's first tactic. This is this mockery. And so, see Eve's response. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. No. A couple things to note about that. You can already see the seduction of this sneer taking root in Eve's, in Eve's thoughts and in her, in her attitude. <coughs> One, she takes away from what God has said. So what did God say? You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's back in chapter 2, verse 16. Eat of every tree in the garden. But here she leaves out that every. A little word every. And that's not insignificant. She's minimizing this bountiful provision of the Lord. One commentator said, Her inexact, unenthusiastic rendition of God's word discounted the Lord God's generosity. I think that's what we see. And then another thing we see is she, she adds to what God says. So she takes away and she also adds. She quotes the Lord, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she adds these words, Neither shall you touch it. So she makes the command more strict than God Made it. It's like if you accidentally touch the tree, zap, you're dead. And that's not what God said. There's always a tendency in, um, in our hearts to think that if we go further than what God said, we'll be in a better place. Um, I mean, we, we see this in the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day and all of their rules and regulations and all the layers of codified rules that they put upon God's commands. We see it, I mean, in some, in some aspects of Puritanism and in, in church history. We see our own ancestry of many of us and that fundamentalism. And, 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 but it always backfires. Because to add to the Word of God is actually to take away from God's authority. And, and so it's always, it never works. But this is, you see the seduction, you see the sneer beginning to take root in, in her attitude. A sec, the second ingredient of this seduction is, is a lie. So after planting this <coughs> attitude in the heart, there's, there's this lie that's, that, co- that comes to the mind. So verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now this, is, this isn't masked at all, really. I mean, this is just a blatant contradiction to what God said. This is the serpent putting his word against the Lord's word. I mean, this is, this, God said, you will surely die. And the serpent here, Satan through the serpent, you most certainly will not surely die. This is a lie. This is an in your face, take that to God. In verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I mean, what's he saying here? He's saying if you obey God, it's going to keep you down. You, you, you'll miss out. You won't be happy. If you obey God, you're going to cut yourself off from all of these other options. According to the serpent, the, this threat of death that the Lord gives them by eating this fruit, the threat of the death was nothing more than a scare tactic to keep them in their place. God is repressive. He's jealous that they're going to, they're going to, they're going to ascend too high and they might be a threat to Him or something like that. That's, what, that's how the serpent's speaking to Eve. It's a lie. 
Satan's trying to sow that thinking into their hearts, into the heart of humanity. Satan knows what's really crucial to destroy. He doesn't go after peripheral things. He's going after the core issue. And notice, he doesn't go after the existence of God. No, he knows arguing against God's existence is futile. They've walked with God in the garden. They, he doesn't go after the law of God or the will of God or the holiness of God. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, God doesn't care what you do. He doesn't really care. Or he doesn't say, God doesn't, God, God doesn't say you can't eat from that tree. He doesn't do that. What does he do? What does he go after? He goes after the goodness of God. The goodness of God. He denies the love and grace and goodness of God that's behind that decree, that condition. He wants to cast God in this ugly light. And it's just this blatant lie. It, it, it's a slur on God's good and generous character. But Eve's buying into it. She's, she's believing the lie. He, he's seducing her to believe that God really can't be trusted to be good. You're going to you're going to have to take life into your own hands. That's that's what the enemy's selling her, and that's the lie. That's the lie in my heart. That's the lie in your heart. And in this lie, it's not dormant in us. It's alive in us, and it's and it shows up in all kinds of ways. It's the lie. It, it, this lie is why we say, I know what the Bible says about. Sex. We saw this last week, that it's a gift from God to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. But I think this will be exciting. And I think this will be satisfying. That's the lie. It's the lie that says, I know what the Bible says, and that I shouldn't spend all my money on myself, but I should be generous and, and giving. But it would be great, actually, to spend it all upon myself. We don't have that conversation, but this is, this is how we live or, I know what God says about we're not supposed to hold a grudge against a person, we're not supposed to seek revenge, but you know what? It feels pretty good to enact revenge when I've been wronged. There's something satisfying about that. And that's, that's the lie in us, and we believe it. Under every temptation is this lie that what God has said cannot be trusted. That God Himself cannot be trusted to be good and to be wise. Underneath, underneath every mess in our lives is the fact that Satan has plotted to destroy our trust in the love and the goodness of God. We've been, we've been ruined by this lie, brothers and sisters. And so as we, we move downward in this descent to ruin, we, we see the serpent and we see his dis, dis, seduction here. And at this point, we're thinking, Adam and Eve, Run! <coughs> go, leave. They should have called out to the Lord for help, something, but, but they don't. And so we see the third movement, and it's this word sin that captures it in verse 6. And so the serpent uh, exits stage left. And so he's, he's, he's gone. There, there remains Eve. There's no dialogue at all in verse 6. It's just one long sentence summarizing Eve's thoughts and actions. Now we ask the question, where was Adam when all this was going on? I think most of you understand this because you know what's coming. And then at the end of verse 6, was he taking a nap? Was he swimming with sea turtles or something like that and just enjoying all those animals he just named? Riding an elephant? I don't know. <coughs> no, the text indicates that he's right there. He, the text says he was with her. Verse 6. He's watching. He's listening. He's He's waiting to see what Eve would do. And so, even when the serpent addresses Eve, 
He does so using this plural pronoun for you. It's a second person plural pronoun. Or as we say in Texas, y'all. Um, he, he, this is how the, the serpent addresses. It's implying Adam's presence. He's there with her. And so Adam's passively and silently watching all of this unfold. It's not exactly a shining moment for biblical manhood, is it? Not doing what God called him to do. We looked at last week. So Adam's, and Adam's not deceived by the snake. Like Eve was. 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul tells us. We don't have time to look there. But I would just say what that means is Adam knows better. He sees through it. He, 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 and, and yet he sins willfully. He sins with eyes wide open. Without excuse. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's just this rapid fire language here in verses 6 to 7. And so just these verbs coming. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate, their eyes were open, they knew, they covered, they hid. I mean, that's really the, the sentence in its bare form. In verses 6 and 7. This is the descent of sin. Of ruin. Now when you look at the sin on paper, it doesn't look like very much. They ate fruit. I mean, I'm like begging my kids to eat fruit. (laughs) But it's such a simple act. It's not like they went on this killing spree through the garden just slaughtering animals for the fun of it or something like that. They, They ate fruit. It's this simple act of eating. This seemingly small act of disobedience. What's, what was the great sin? I know we've talked about this a few weeks ago in, in some, but what was it about this that absolutely ruined the human race? Before I say that, let me just make a more general statement about sin. Listen, sin isn't necessarily <coughs> severe because of the effect it has on us or others. That's not what makes sin severe. It's unimaginably unimaginably severe because of who it's against. And so any offense against an infinite God is infinitely severe. And so that, we, we need to understand. But what's going on in Genesis 3 with this tree, this fruit? Remember God says, you can have anything here. This is the garden of a thousand yeses. Eat all you want. But there's this one no, you can't eat from that tree. And God gives no explanation. No explanation. And what if God did give some kind of detailed explanation? You know, he sees Adam and Eve walking up to that tree saying, you know, what, what's so bad about eating from this tree that you told us not to eat from? And God says, well, if you eat from that tree, you, you, there will be infinite universal suffering and misery on all humanity for all time to come. Like, okay, I think we'll eat from this tree. <laughs> I mean, it, it never, never mind. Well, there's, a, there's plenty of us to eat. The reason God doesn't give this, this lengthy explanation of all that's going to happen and all that's going to come from this, from this decision, it, it's crucial really to understanding why this decree was so important and what's, what it's about. If He had given them an explanation, they said, oh, we won't eat from that tree, what would be their reason? It, it, just because it's not worth it. They'd be doing, as one commentator said, cost-benefit analysis. Kind of, well, I guess I'll obey you because it's really not worth it, the, the, the risk. That's not obedience. That's self-interest. That's putting you still in the driver's seat. 
And that's not where we belong. And so here's what's going on. God's saying to Adam and Eve, My children, I am God. I, I, and your life is a gift to you from me. And, I, and, and this whole world is a gift to you. And, if, and I want you to live as if I'm God and you're living by my power as my special creation. And so, therefore, don't eat from that tree. You can trust me. You can treat me as God or you can put yourself in the place of God. And the serpent knows this is what's going on because he says, take of the tree and you'll be like God. And that's what Adam and Eve do. Now it's, it's important for us to look beyond this rule in all rules. You have to look through. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't be selfish. I mean, and, and all those things the Bible says, all of those rules, behind the rules is don't put yourself in the place of God. Obey the rules because you're not God. God says, obey my rule, not because of cost-benefit analysis, not because you can see why, but because I'm God and I'm good. I'm good. I wanted their obedience to be rooted in trust of His wisdom and His goodness and not their own. He wanted His faithfulness and His love to be enough for them. That's what He's looking for. Virtually everything that's wrong with this world is because we put ourselves in the place of God. We attempt that. That's the problem. That's what's so bad about this fruit from this tree. On the one hand, it's, it's not hard to see why certain sins, we, we see that we're doing that. So you take something like murder or stealing or adultery, and so I'm taking another person's life. We say, okay, I can see how that's putting yourself in the place of God, or taking another person's spouse, or taking another person's possessions. What about other sins? What about anxiety? What about worry? Well, some of us, some of us are eaten up with worry, and this is a this is a perennial 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 struggle for my own life, and it has all kinds of effects on our lives, physically, um, uh, emotionally, relationally. We, we we're affected by that, and, and and so we're so anxious. Why? I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I. I get anxious because I have an idea of how my life should go and how our church should go and how this world should go and things in our nation should go. And, and, and I'm afraid God's not going to get it right. He's not going to do it the way that it needs to be done and I know better. And, and what am I doing? Why am I eating up with anxiety? Because I'm, I'm trying to be in the place of God. The sin, that's the sin behind the sin of worry. And so because of mistrust, we put ourselves in the place of God. I, I can't trust God, so I have to do it myself. Or at least be anxious and fretful. So how then do I deal with worry? How do I deal with anxiety? I have to remind myself that I am not God. I, the, the God is powerful and He is good. And this is the most important, that He is for me because of Christ. I mean, these are, this is how we will lay assault on these, these sins in our own heart. and so take, take other sins, but what you see is murder and worry, they have the same root. The same sin behind the sin. Take other, so take holding grudges. We talked about this earlier. Bitterness. If you don't forgive somebody, it's because you're putting yourself in the place of God. You're saying, you're saying you know better... 
you know better about what that person deserves than God does. You know that they really deserve some mess in their life. And you're ready to give it to them. You, you think you have the right to remain angry with them until they get what they deserve. Listen, we, we don't have that right. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. All of our problems are coming because we've done what the serpent enticed Eve and us to do. There's a story I read this week that illustrates this, I think, helpfully. Now, William Borden uh, of the Borden Dairy uh, brand, uh, he grew up in Chicago in the late 19th century. And so he went off to Yale in the 1890s. He, clearly he was from an extremely wealthy family, and so he, he was an heir of that great Borden uh, Dairy fortune. And so when he was at Yale, he sensed God's call in his life to go to the mission field, and he decided he was going to go to North China, work among the Mongols and the, and the Chinese people in North China. At that time, it was a very, very, very dangerous place for Westerners to go and live. And so when he announced to his friends and his family and people that he knew that he was going to there as a missionary, everybody begged him not to go. And they were just appalled by this decision that he was making. He's a man of stature and privilege and wealth and and, and importance in American society. You, you can't go. Other people will go. You don't need to go. So he received opposition from his family, received opposition from people in that high society, and, and yet he was resolute. When he graduated from Yale, he gave away his entire inheritance, which was a million dollars in that day, and he gave it to mission agencies, about $27 million in today's dollars. Gave it all away. Now in relative poverty... He made his way to North China, and he stopped and, and made, a, made a stop in Egypt, in Cairo, on his way to China. So, fresh out of Yale, whole life ahead of him, this desire to serve the Lord, advance the gospel among the unreached, bright future. Within a few weeks of arriving in Cairo, he contracted spinal meningitis. And when a few weeks after that, he died. <laughs> Never made it. Now, when someone, when someone went through his belongings, the few things that he had, he lived in poverty, basically, a few things he had there in Cairo, they found scratched on a piece of paper these words, and he was in the process of, and he had just written them into his journal from this piece of paper uh, that he, as he was laying there dying. There were three phrases, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Now, why wouldn't he have written in his journal, why, God? I mean, what are you doing? All of my commitment, all of my sacrifices, all of my obedience, all that I've left behind, all my preparation, all of my potential. Why, why would I die now? What possible good can come from this? No, instead, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Why? Because he didn't obey for reputation. He didn't obey for the impact he might make. He didn't obey for results. He didn't obey for the thrill of it and the adventure. He obeyed God just for God's sake. He, not because it made sense, not because he understood it, just because it was God. Because God was God and <laughs> he was not. So do you see, 
you see this, what's behind the, all the ruin in, in the world. Uh, if you say, I'm going, I'm going to be religious. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start you know, being there every Sunday. and I'm going to start giving more. I'm going to start doing all of these things. I'm going to start obeying. And, 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 and I'm, going to, I'm going to believe in God. And I'm, I'm going to obey. But if it's calculated, if it's, if it's, a, it's like part of a career move, or if, or if it's for your kids, or if it's, you know, I just need to be more centered in my life so I can be more successful and productive, and so I, just, I think this is the missing component in my life. If that's it, there has to be some point you say, I'm doing this because God says so, and I trust Him because He's good. That's, that's what the, the serpent here is trying to, to dislodge. He wants them to doubt the goodness of God. And, and, and he wants to get into their. He wants this into their heart so that it poisons them, and it does, and it's catastrophic. Last word is shame. Shame. Verse seven. So this sin pulls them down and down and down into this descent of this very abyss. I mean, it does does the eating of that fruit make them like God? No, it does not. And, and it pulls them. Someone said, to the very gates of hell. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So now the dominoes begin to fall one by one, and they're going to keep falling, we'll see in a few weeks. This, this new sensation is added now to the human experience called shame. For nakedness was not embarrassing. Now it is. And it, it's not that nakedness, it's not, it doesn't just mean that they're without clothing. This is, this is shame. They were shame. We saw the end of verse of chapter 2. They were, they were both naked and were not ashamed. And this is the other bracket. Here they are naked and they are ashamed. They've been enlightened. Their eyes are open. But what's the result? Are they satisfied now? No, they are not. Is it fulfillment? No. Is it happiness? No. Godlike qualities? No. It's shame. It's shame. And they rightly sense this need for covering, but their attempt is futile. I mean, fig leaves? Really? Is that going to, I mean, okay, you can cover some private parts, but can you cover shame with fig leaves? I mean, this is like the first futile attempt at works righteousness. It's right away. This is the first thing they're doing. What can I do to cover my shame? I'm not looking to God to, to, to amend this. It's, and it's futile. What does God do? I know it's going to be a few weeks, so we're just going to peek over the fence here. Verse 8 and 9, this will be next time and, and through, through the rest of this chapter, really. You see the rest of human history here in a nutshell. Verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I notice two things. One, because of this, we are now hiders. All of humanity, we're hiders. We hide from ourselves. We, we hide from each other. We spin the truth. We, we color it dishonestly. Just look at our social media feeds. We hide. But most of all, we hide from God. Why? Because in the presence of God, we, we see what we don't want to see. 
we're hiding, we're running from the truth, running from God, running from each other, running from ourselves even. We'll come back to that, you know, in a few weeks. This is the second thing we see. While we hide, God seeks. Our nature is to hide. God's nature is to seek. Adam and Eve hide. God comes back saying, where are you? Now, does God really need information? Does He not? I'm so confused. He's terrible at hide and seek or something. God knows exactly what's going on. He knows they're hiding. He knows where they are. And, and so what's he doing? Well, it's, it's, just, it's showing us if we ever find God, it's because God found us. It's because he found us. There's a hymn, an old hymn, and we, we sing on occasion. I didn't, didn't think about it till too late, Patrick. I wasn't going to harass you on Saturday night to change the song. <coughs> but the words go, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. I know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. I mean, anyone who knows eternal life in Christ feels like that. God, you must have come after me because there's no way that I would have come after you on my own. We, we understand. That's just, that's just a fact. The Bible from beginning to end teaches that. And most significantly, God going out in love, it's, it, it finds its ultimate expression in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus that all of these movements in this descent are dealt with. I mean, just think about what Christ does to address the ruin here that we're seeing in Genesis 3. Jesus dealt with the serpent. Did he? He, he comes and he fulfills Genesis 3.15 that we're going to see next time. And he crushes the serpent's head through his death on the cross. He deals with the serpent. He dealt with the seduction. He dealt with the sneer. He was mocked and he was ridiculed in our place. You remember accounts of his arrest and betrayal and this demonic laughter of this bloodied Son of God putting the crown of thorns on him and the robes around his neck and the scepter in his hand and just playing dress up with him, spitting on him, mocking him. And when he's on the cross, oh, if you're the Son of God, why don't you come down from there and save yourself? He's dealt with the sneer. He's dealt with the lie. The lie is you can't trust in God. You can't trust Him. And and all the poison in your life is because we don't believe that God really loves us. You don't believe in the grace of God. You don't believe that God is good and can be trusted. And what's going to overcome that? Just kind of believing in some generic, nebulous God of love? Is that going to be... No, you need more than that. You have to see Jesus Christ climbing that tree of death in our place and turning the tree of death for Him into a tree of life for you. Totally undeservedly. That will finally begin to kind of remove the toxins that are in our souls. As we behold Him there and, and we start to actually believe that God loves us because we have this greatest demonstration in the cross. Behold what manner of love that we should be called children of God. This is, this is how we know love, that Christ died for us. I mean, this is this greatest demonstration. That's the only thing that, that's going to begin to deal with the lie that's resident in our hearts. It's the, only, it's the only pry bar strong enough to dislodge that stone of unbelief that remains in us. It's beholding Christ, crucified, risen, Jesus dealt with the seduction. He dealt with the serpent. He dealt with the sin. 
I mean, he begins to deal with it in another garden, in Gethsemane. So as he faces another tree, the cross. So centuries after Adam and Eve struggled in the garden uh, over this command about a tree, Jesus is doing the very same thing. He He knows he has to go to the cross and die for our sins to pay the penalty that we owe. But he's struggling. I mean, just think of the contrast there. Adam and Eve are in this bright, sunny garden. All of this bountiful fruit to enjoy. Garden paradise. And God says to them, Obey me about the tree and you will live. But they did not. And here's Jesus in this dark garden. Garden affected by the curse. And God says to him, Obey me about the tree and you'll be crushed. But he did. He obeyed. Here's what he did. He climbed the tree of death and turned the tree of death, the cross, into a tree of life for you and me. He dealt with this and he reversed the curse of the tree. The curse came because we put ourselves in uh, where only God deserves to be, putting ourselves in the place of God. And the curse was reversed by God putting himself where we deserve to be, on the cross. Jesus dealt with the serpent. He dealt with the seduction. He dealt with the sin. And he dealt with the shame. He dealt with the shame. He bore our shame. He was crucified, how? Naked on the cross. That we might be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Unashamed before God. Before God's presence without shame. He endured our shame so that we would not have to hide from God in shame ever again. We said in the beginning, (coughs) we don't tend to treasure and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the most important event in all of human history. We don't do it as much as we should if we don't view sin as 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 utterly devastating as it really is. But the more we understand the ruin, the more we'll be overcome with gratitude for the redemption Martin Luther, jo- Martin, Martin Luther, Martin Lloyd Jones. Um, he he once said, the way he could tell the difference between someone he called a Pharisee, this was a person who, he, who who believed they were saved by their good works and and because they lived a good life. The way he could tell the difference between that kind of person, this kind of Pharisee type person, and a Christian who understood the gospel of grace, was to ask them, "Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian?" And if you ask a pharisaical, moralistic person that question, are you a Christian, what happens? They get upset. What do you mean? Of course I am. Why would you even ask that? How dare you ask me if I'm a Christian or not? But he says, if you ask anybody who understands the gospel of grace, are you a Christian, they smile and they may even laugh. They laugh. They say, yes, I know. It's crazy. Me, a Christian. But it's true. It's a whole different kind of laughter than the laughter of the serpent. If you're not a joke to yourself that you're a Christian, that, that you have new life, eternal life, then, then if that doesn't almost make you laugh, that even you could be saved, then you may not understand the, the, the enormity of the grace that is ours in Christ. There... there Listen, there's better news. I, I mean, I would love to be able to 
see when I wake up from my nap this afternoon that scrolling across that cure for cancer has been discovered. I mean, I would be, there would be tears streaming down my own cheeks and I would be on the phone and, and, and it would be terrific. But there's better news today than a cure for cancer. There's a cure for sin. And, 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 and those of us who have, who have received this cure by faith in Jesus Christ, we ought never to get over that. And it's not just looking back and saying, okay, yeah, that was something that happened to me. It's, it's, this, it's this constant renewing of our trust and confidence in Jesus alone. And so we're always looking to Christ and saying, oh, the ruin, the ruin, the ruin. But the grace, the grace that is mine because of Christ. And we, we laugh and we smile and we say, what in the world that I would be a Christian? It is all of Christ. It is Christ. Listen, maybe you're here today and, and you're visiting or maybe you've been here a long time and you say, you know, I, I've been around this stuff or I'm hearing this for the first time. I don't know where you're at, but say, I, I'm, I don't think I've ever received that cure. And it's not by, because you need to work harder. It's not like you've got to work it up. I hope that's been very clear as we've looked at this this morning. There's only one way to receive the cure, the vaccine as it were. It's by faith. It's by trusting in Christ and what He alone has done. He came to do what you could not do. He lived a perfect life, obeying the Father. He died for your sin, taking the punishment that you deserve. And He rose from the grave, conquering death and conquering sin. And now He offers this life, eternal, abundant life, forgiveness to you freely if you trust in Christ and what He's done. And, 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 and renounce any efforts you make to try to do it on your own. So please, please, if you've not received that cure, that one is available to you today. And I beg you to to call out to him now and pray to him even as I pray. And then come talk with us and we'd love to rejoice with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for the fact that um, we who are in Christ, it 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 is all of you. It's your grace and your grace alone. And so as we sing these words now, and, and I pray that it would, as we, as we now better understand the depths of our uh, condition by birth and by nature, and, and of, our, of the devastating consequences of sin, that it would cause us, our affections to now elevate, and, and our thoughts and, and even our expressiveness in singing to, to rise as we consider the greatness of the grace that is ours now because of Jesus and what we've been rescued from. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.